What a perfect song to introduce the message, show us Christ until everyone receives Jesus Christ as Lord. That's just give you a preview of the conclusion. That's what Christ is wanting us to do. He wants us to accept him, receive the invitation that he gives to us. As we come back to Matthew this morning, after having been away from it for three weeks now, you'll remember that we're in the last days, the last week of Jesus' earthly life, and he's going to make the most of it every single day. And on that Monday of that last week, we looked at the fact that he was ushered into Jerusalem on the back, back of the donkey with shouts of, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna, save us now. That's what Hosanna means. And the next morning, Tuesday, he went back to the temple and, uh, and was outraged at what the leaders had done to his father's house. He had made it into a, a den of thieves, and he cleared him out. He cleansed the temple. And once he cleansed the temple, then he was able to minister. And he ministered throughout that whole day and preached and healed the people that were there, packed out with people because of the Passover time. Then only did he start that preaching. The Gospel of Mark tells us that he went there and preached every day in those temple courts during that last week. And the Sadducees and Pharisees and priests of the temple were then outraged at him and asked him, by what authority do you do these things? And you'll remember that Jesus uh, didn't, didn't tell them. Then on Wednesday, he turned to the temple and walked about teaching and preaching among the people there. Well, those religious leaders just couldn't let that happen, so they interrupted his teaching. And again, they asked the same question, by whose authority are you doing these things? And to answer them, Jesus gives them three parables. Now, we've looked at the first two of them, but let me recap. And each one of them, are, they're all focusing on judgment, the first was a parable of the two sons whom the father asked to go to the field to work. You remember that. And the first said, sure, Dad, I'll go do it. And then he disobeyed. He didn't. Second son said, nah, I don't want to do that. But then he did. Jesus drew the conclusion then that the religious leaders were like that first son, who were all talk, no action, the second parable was also about a vineyard in which the landowner representing God uh, rents a lush vineyard representing Israel uh, to tenant farmers representing the religious leaders um, of Israel to work the vineyard. And when the harvest time came, he sent his servants representing the prophets uh, coming, coming in to, share, uh, to talk, talk about the kingdom, to receive that portion which belonged to him. And that portion was repentance and righteousness. That's what God was looking for. But the farmers beat up and killed the servants, just as the priests and Sadducees' forefathers had done to the prophets. The landowner then sent his only son, which, of course, we know represents Jesus Christ, and they killed him too. Jesus was letting them know that he knew that they knew that they were going to kill him. And Jesus then asked them, so what's going to happen now? And the Pharisees drew their own strong conclusion, and in so doing, they indicted themselves, which we found has been a pattern uh, for them. They indict themselves in their uh, questions and answers to Jesus. 
He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied to Jesus, and he will uh, rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. So in responding that way, they actually were prophesying their own judgment and replacement. If you remember, we, we talked about those two concepts a few weeks ago. And Jesus explained the parable by quoting Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then he, re, then he applied it to the religious leaders directly. I mean, there was no question about who he was directing this to. He says, therefore I tell you, talking to those religious leaders, that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Judgment, replacement. Now, last time we looked at this, we didn't quite complete that passage at the end of chapter 21, and it's really important to understand. Jesus had one more statement he made there in verse 44, talking about the stone that becomes the cornerstone. Now, remember how big a cornerstone could be. We showed that and talked to you about that last time, about 40 40 feet long, 8 feet wide, Three and a half feet thick and weighed about 80 tons. That's 160,000 pounds. One cornerstone. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 21, verse 44, Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Now this is the application of the application. Is the application of the judgment. The Pharisees and Sadducees had said he will bring those wretches to a wretch's end. And Jesus was kind of saying, you have no idea. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, will be shattered. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The Greek word is likmao, to crush to pieces, to grind to powder. It's a strong verse. Now, what's, what's it saying? Anyone who falls on this stone, it's, he's not talking about tripping over a stone. If you trip over a stone, you, you're not going to be crushed and shattered. What he's talking about is to fall on has the idea of being above and falling on, sort of pouncing upon, in the sense of seizing on with the intent to do harm. He's referring back to the parable when the servants seized the son and killed him. He's saying, whoever tries to seize the Lord Jesus Christ to do harm to him shall be broken into pieces. From the early church onward up to this very day and around the world, and yes, growing in our own country, the name of Jesus is denigrated. The church is beginning to be considered an extremist organization. Christians are ridiculed. And like the Pharisees, people today reject the name and person of Jesus. And are trying to put him, or at least a concept of him, to death all over again. You do that to God's Son, Jesus says, and this is what God will do to you. They will be broken to pieces. But, but even beyond that, at the final judgment, that cornerstone will fall on them and crush them like fine powder. Imagine a 40-foot, 80-ton stone falling on someone. Did they get the point? (laughs) Absolutely did. Verse 45, same chapter. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, all of them, they knew he was talking about them. And they fell on their knees and repented and turned and followed Jesus. Boy, that would be a great ending to that story, wouldn't it? 
But no, verse 46, they looked for ways to arrest him and they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So they continued in their hostility. What a different history Israel would have had over the past 2,000 years if they had repented. No wonder Jesus wept over Jerusalem and broke his heart. That then brings us to our passage here this morning that we're going to look at in chapter 22, verse Matthew. I'd like you to turn to that in your Bibles or look it up on your electronic device, whatever it happens. I'm not going to put it up here. It's good for us to start, start looking at the actual verses. So uh, I'll give you a moment. Matthew chapter 22, either in your Bibles or if you've got a phone, iPad, whatever you happen to have. Uh, flip to that. We'll, we'll be looking at the verses individually as we go through like I usually do, but uh, this passage here I just want to read. And if you don't have that, just, just listen and understand what, uh, what the Lord is saying here. Verse 1 through 14, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened calf have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, A wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners, invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing, a wedding, uh, was not wearing wedding clothes, and he asked, How did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told his attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Now, if you thought the other parables were strong and powerful, this may be one of the most powerful and strongest parables that Jesus ever told. It's a parable about a royal feast, a royal wedding feast, and it's directed in a very specific way in its historical context, but in a general sense, it has much further reaching implications as well. Now, the historical setting here, again, this is Wednesday of the last week of Jesus' uh, earthly life and ministry. Friday, he's going to be crucified, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Sunday, he's going to be uh, raised from the dead again. For three years... For three years, he's been preaching and teaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's been proclaiming himself as a Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. He's been offering himself and his kingdom to the people of Israel, his own people, the very ones that were called the, uh, God's chosen people. And now the three years are ended and the people have rejected him. And the leaders have rejected him and are extremely hostile to him. And by Friday, they'll turn him over to the Romans for execution. Now, this is a third parable of a trilogy of parables. And each of the parable is alike in that the message is a message of judgment. And the essence of all three parables are essentially the same. You have rejected me. 
All the Old Testament prophets spoke of me. All the miracles that I have been doing for these past three years have validated my claim to be the Son of God, to be the Savior, to be the Messiah. All the words that I have said affirm that as well, but you have consistently for three years rejected me, and now God rejects you. Now, This parable, again, is a story about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus constantly was talking about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, of course, is the sphere or the dominion where God rules, where he is sovereign, where he is king. It's where redemption is found, uh, being saved by grace, having our sins forgiven. It's the sphere of God's gracious salvation. It's a community of people who have come to salvation, who are under the rule and, and, and the guiding and the leading and the grace of God. And as we begin looking at this parable, we find, we first see an invitation that is rejected. In verse 2, Jesus sets up sets this up by saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Now there's something we need to understand about these wedding banquets. It wasn't, it wasn't just a large wedding reception with a big meal or even a huge meal. We, we often have to have a wedding and then we go and have a big reception and ha- have a blast for about an hour and a half, a couple hours. The wedding in those days was a big, long feast and celebration. They normally lasted seven days. Seven days. You had the people come to your home for the wedding feast. You, you fed them. You cared for them you, uh, for all during that time. And if you were a king, it could go far, uh, far, much further than that, much longer than that even. And it wasn't until the very end of that time period that the, the, uh, the promises and pledges of the, of the uh, groom and the bride would be made. And a wedding made by a king for his son would be a wedding of all weddings. You could just imagine all the preparations that would have to go into that, all the fatted calves and the sheep that would have to be separated. Or, excuse me, <laughs> I'm flipping to a different, different passage. It would have to be prepared, all the, the calves and uh, sheep that have to be prepared. Now, what's, what's interesting about this parable is that Jesus' focus is on the great celebration those people could, the greatest celebration those people could imagine. The marriage itself wasn't the main point. It wasn't the bride and the groom here. Nothing is said about the bride and the groom or the actual wedding ceremony itself. It's talking about the celebration and the invitation to that celebration. And Jesus is saying that the kingdom of heaven is like the greatest celebration imaginable, thrown by the wealthiest person imaginable for the worthiest and most honored person imaginable. So he says there, there was a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son, and they, they could all imagine it. Verse 3 says, he sent his servants to those who had been given, who, who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. Now this in, introduces us to a Middle Eastern uh, custom having no postal service as such uh, during that time. Servants would, would have been sent out to hand-deliver invitations to certain chosen people who would then let the servants know of their acceptance, a a foregone conclusion. Who wouldn't accept a king's invitation, right? So they they were all the called ones. They were the chosen ones, the ones that had received the invitation, an extremely high honor. Are you guys back there in the tech doing okay? 
with, with a script? Okay, good. Okay. <laughs> I, sorry. When all the preparations were finally done, finally ready, those same servants who had initially gone out to send out the invitation, they would go back out and let everyone know that it was time to celebrate. But the end, end of the verse says, they, the ones that were invited, refused to come. Unbelievable. Inconceivable. Unheard of. That's probably what was going through the mind of the religious leaders and the crowds that who were listening to Jesus' parable here. Well, that's ridiculous. Nobody would do that. Nobody in their right mind would not go to, to that celebration. For several reasons. One, you, he would never spurn the honor that a king was offering to you. Secondly, just think of the kind of food that you would get there. You're not going to have that normally in your, in your own homes. And thirdly, you just didn't insult a Middle Eastern monarch. Not a healthy thing to do. What was the king's response? It's interesting. Apparently, he was a kind and gracious king. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. He gave them a second chance. Explaining that all the sumptuous food was ready, saying, You've got to come. It's going to be great. It's ready. Verse 5, but they paid no attention, and they went off. One to his field, another to his business. They were indifferent. Eh, who cares? They couldn't have cared less about this wedding. Again, the story was so ridiculous to those who were listening, so far-fetched as to be absurd. It made no sense to them, such indifference that these people would have shown, such self-preoccupation of their own affairs. For what? To miss out on all the joy and the grandeur and the glory and the beauty and the celebration? Seriously? No one would do that. And such an insult to the king, such an affront to his graciousness, because an invitation like that was the highest honor in the country. And if that's not bad enough, look at verse 6. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. Really? Now the story's just gotten silly, right? (laughs) Totally ridiculous. That would never happen, killing the servants just for asking them to come a second time. That's the story. Outright hostility is added to indifference, and both reflect a certain rebellion against the king. Now, let's stop there just a second. Let's just be clear about what Jesus was saying here. So we have the kingdom of heaven being spoken about, which is the domain of God's rule through salvation. It's a community of those who love and serve the Lord, a place of divine blessing and salvation by grace. The king, of course, is God, and the bridegroom is Jesus Christ. And the idea of a great banquet is actually a Jewish concept. You can read it in the Talmud uh, that the Jews said that when the Messiah comes, God will put on a banquet to end all banquets and they'll feast with the Messiah. That's in their own writings. So Jesus is actually using a very messianic concept from their own Jewish writings, which they were all well aware of. And God is calling people to his son. He's calling people to come to his kingdom to honor his son. And who are the guests of honor supposed to be? The people who had already been invited, had already been called. Who are the already called ones? Well, it's the Jews. It's Israel. 
You can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 that promises that God's people will come from the seed of Abraham. And then then God says this, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be blessed. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And he goes on to say that they shall be as the sand of the sea and the stars of the heaven. They were the already called ones. Throughout the Old Testament, they were the called ones. They were the invited ones. They were the specially chosen ones to be a part of his kingdom, the channel through which God was going to reach the world. And who were the servants that went out to call the chosen or invited ones in this particular parable? They were the preachers like John the Baptist, like Jesus himself, like the disciples that Jesus sent out two by two and and the other apostles. Some of the people treated them with indifference, and some of the people murdered them. They killed John the Baptist, cut his head off. They killed Jesus, as we well know. James was beheaded, Thomas stoned to death, all the other apostles, just a list of martyrs. It's the same today, isn't it? There are people who are just indifferent, don't really care, they don't want to be bothered. They're preoccupied with life. They're preoccupied with work. They're preoccupied with material possessions. They don't have time to worry about all this spiritual stuff. They're just too busy. One author suggested that this type of person represented the the secular world and that the people who were actually hostile were those who were steeped in false religions. Around the world, throughout the centuries, it, it was those of other religions that brought persecution, imprisonment, and death to Christians. Why is that? Because error always seeks to stamp out truth. You've got to get rid of truth if the error is going to push forward. And historically, that distinction between the secular and the the, the religious um, hostilities um, was probably true, but I, I would propose that the two are melding, especially in our culture today. Self has become God, and whatever your truth is, is truth. Everything I want or anything I want to do is okay. It's justified, and don't tell me otherwise. And this God of self has become more and more antagonistic and hostile towards Christians, towards the church, and certainly towards Christ. In today's culture, there, there is very little indifference left. I don't know if you've noticed that. Very strong opinions about everything. So the parable was, was simple to understand. The invitation was rejected. And the chief priests and Pharisees knew he was referring to them as the ones rejecting the invitation. We know that because of verse 45 of the previous chapter. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They couldn't escape the meaning. Now, starting in verse 7, we see how the rejecter of the invitation, rejectors of the invitation were punished. Verse 7, the king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. He was enraged. He had demonstrated his grace, demonstrated his kindness, his mercy, his patience, but his patience has a limit. His patience has an end. Now you may say, ah, it doesn't sound like the God I know. 
My God is loving and gracious and, and patience. Folks, I'm so glad that He is. And far more than that. Because if He weren't, our world would have been destroyed eons ago. But God so loved the world. But He hates sin. And He hates the devil. And He hates the demonic spirits. And all that sin has done to His creation and to His creatures. And the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, of all who choose sin, because of your stubbornness and your unrepented heart, unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. There will come a day when His wrath will be unleashed. And I'm glad I'm not going to be there for that. We're going to come to Matthew 24 and shortly, I'll say. Why? He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Verse 8 says, Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. They were not worthy to come to my wedding banquet because they weren't good enough. Why weren't they worthy? Because they weren't moral enough? Because they weren't ethical enough? Because they didn't do enough good things or good deeds? No. They weren't worthy because they wouldn't accept the invitation. That's the only reason given. And that is essential to understand. Listen, worthiness is not dependent on moral virtue. They would have been worthy if they had just accepted the invitation. In a minute in verse 10, we're, we're going to see that uh, he then calls the bad and the good to come to the wedding. So it isn't that he's looking around to find the most noble or the nicest people or the, the most good. Worthy, worthiness is tied to saying yes to the invitation. They weren't worthy because they wouldn't come. They weren't worthy because they refused salvation in the Son. But it wasn't just a refusal by some. It wasn't just those particular religious leaders. It was Israel as a whole, as as we find out. God's chosen people whom He had loved over the centuries from the beginning of time, whom He had guarded and protected and blessed and prospered and fought for. Those very people turned on Him and He finally said, Enough! You've rejected me. I reject you. That's why Jesus wept over Jerusalem. It broke his heart. He loved them. His people. And you remember the words of judgment that came from Jesus' lips? If you, even you, had only known of this day, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And Forty years later, it happened in 70 A.D., Titus Vespasian, the Roman general, came to Jerusalem, conquered the city, and murdered about a million one hundred thousand Jews. Josephus, who was an eyewitness to the whole thing, wrote these words in his History of Jewish War. Listen, that building, the Temple of Jerusalem, however, I quote, 
God long ago has sentenced to the flames. But now in the revolution of the time periods, the fateful day had arrived. The tenth month of Luz, the very day on which previously it had been burned by the king of Babylon, one of the soldiers, neither awaiting orders nor filled with um, horror of so dread an undertaking, but moved by some supernatural impulse, snatched a brand from the blazing timber and hoisted up by one of his fellow soldiers, flung the fiery missile through a golden window. And when the flame arose, a scream as poignant as a tragedy went up from the Jews now that the object which before they had guarded so closely was going to ruin. And while a sanctuary was burning, neither pity for age nor respect for rank was shown. On the contrary, children and old people, laity and priests alike, were massacred. The emperor had ordered the entire city and sanctuary to be razed to the ground, except the highest towers and that part of the wall that enclosed the city on the west. And that's what remains today known as the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. Isn't that interesting? The rest was torn down and burned, just as Jesus had said. So after the initial invitations to the chosen guests were rejected, new guests were invited. Verses 9 and 10. So go to the street corners, invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Go everywhere. Shout it from the rooftops. Go, to, go out in the highways and byways, down the alleyways, in the street corners, and invite everybody. Go wherever people are. That's what Jesus says in his great commission, doesn't he? Go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples. That's the mandate. That's the mandate of the church. Isn't that the heart of the gospel message? So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Seriously? You mean bad people <laughs> were invited to this wedding? How's that possible? Yes. But what kind of bad and good is he talking about here? We're talking about lifestyles. We're talking about human morality. And in life, there are certain people that end up being bad. They follow a criminal, uh, criminal lifestyle. And there are others that basically are, are good that we would think, oh, that's a good person over there. We're not talking about Christians and non-Christians. It's just a general uh, a thing in life that there are humanly good people and people that end up going down the wrong way. But when it comes to calling people into the kingdom, there is no discrimination. Isn't that wonderful? God isn't going around only looking for moral, morally good people. God is calling everybody, as the Scripture says, bad and good. He's created them all. He loves them all. And the thing that makes them worthy is not their inherent goodness or perhaps their inherent badness, but their willingness to accept what? The invitation. Their willingness to accept the invitation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul talks about this. He says, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit, inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. He's talking to the Christians there in, in Corinth. But, Paul goes on to say, you were washed. You were sanctified. 
You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Wow. That's what God can do for us. You know, there are so many churches today that says, ah, come as you are. God will accept you as you are. You don't have to change. After all, you were, you were born that way, whatever way that might happen to be. No. Well, yes, we were all born sinners. That's, that, that's true. But God does not expect us to stay sinners or continue practice, practicing. So some of you that came to Christ later in life, we could probably go back and, and you would admit there are things that, uh, that you would not probably want, want to admit that took place in your past life. But God transformed you. God changed you. After Paul listed all, all these practices, he says to the Corinthian believers, and that is what some of you were, past tense. They're no longer that way. They no longer practice those behaviors or those, those lifestyles. God does call the good and the bad, according to Scripture, the moral and the immoral, the criminal and the non-criminal. How is that possible? Because when we accept the invitation... God then transforms us. He changes us. He purifies us, fills us with his grace and his peace and his joy. Then something interesting happens in our story here. The king looks over all his guests and he sees someone is out of place. It's an intruder. He throws him out. This is, important. this is an important point Jesus is making, and we need to understand what he's saying here. Listen, starting in verse 11. But when the king came to see the guest, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. And he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You say, well, now wait a minute. What could you expect? I mean, they went out and invited everybody from the highways and byways. They invited the poor and the, the people didn't have anything. The good, the bad, the, the poor, the dirty. How can he expect everyone to have, a wedding, have wedding clothes to come to this wedding? Well, either the people had time to run home, get cleaned up, and put on the best that they may have had. Or perhaps at the wedding hall, they provided some wedding garments for them to wear. When I was studying in seminary up near Boston, Nancy's uh, father came up to visit us. He had a business trip or something, and he took us out to this great restaurant called Anthony's Pier 4 in Boston. It overlooked the bay, beautiful restaurant, but the requirement was as you walked in, the men had to have a blazer on. And if you didn't, they had a closet, <laughs> checked out your size, put a blazer on you. Then you can go in and enjoy the meal. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us where people got their wedding garments, but apparently one person was there without the proper attire, whatever, however that was. And the king saw it and went over to him and says, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And the man was speechless. He had no excuse. He had no reason, which means that everybody could have had a garment. Everybody could have had a garment, including him, but he either refused it or tried to sneak in without it. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow, that seems harsh. Why did he do that? I mean, seriously, over some clothes? Really? That sounds very superficial. Can't we come to Christ as we are? 
Didn't Jesus say, whosoever will may come? Weren't there some extra garments at the door to put, to put on him? What Jesus was saying was far deeper than what the man was wearing. And I think you probably already know what that is. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees were all about pomp and circumstance and following the law and dressing themselves properly with self-righteousness. We've talked a lot about that as we've gone through Matthew. And Jesus was saying to them, wrong clothes, wrong clothes. It's not about what's on the inside, it's what's in the heart that counts. Jesus was saying there aren't going to be any wedding crashers in my kingdom. There's not going to be any kingdom crashers. Going back to the parable of the tares and the weed, there are tares among the weed that need to be torn up, need to be pulled up, they need, they need to be born, uh, burned. There are a lot of people today that go to church because they feel it's the right thing to do. It's good for the kids. It's got good moral teachings. Get them into Sunday school. They'll, they'll, they'll learn some good things. And they, and some of them will get involved in activities, perhaps even join in committees. But many, I believe, are going to be like the people in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not, uh, and in your name, drive out demons? In your name, perform many miracles? Weren't, weren't we on, uh, on the deacon committee? Weren't we on the decoration committee? Weren't we doing stuff in your church? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. They're kingdom crashers. They weren't properly clothed. Well, what is a proper attire? It's the righteousness of Christ. The proper attire is the righteousness of Christ. If we go back to Matthew 5.20, Jesus talks about what he's looking for. He says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't have righteousness like them. Not good enough. In Hebrews, Hebrews um, chapter 12 um, we're, we're talking about, excuse me, when we're talking about the true righteousness, it's, it's, it's true holiness that is only possible through Christ. In Hebrews twelve fourteen, we read that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, it says it so well, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. Isn't that good? Perfect. So the righteous, the religious leaders knew what Jesus was referring to. And the, and the king looked at this man and he saw no righteousness there. We're not talking about right living or right thinking or right speaking. Jesus saw no holiness. He saw no godliness. And he said, you don't belong here. And he had him bound hand and foot, threw him outside into the darkness where there would be weeping and gnashing into the teeth, referring, of course, to everlasting hell, eternal hell. Sad, sad day. And it's going to be a shock, I think, for a lot of people, just like the Pharisees. They thought they had it all together. They really did. And Jesus ends the parable by, parable by saying, For many are invited, but a few are chosen. How many are invited? For God so loved the world. Everybody 
is invited. But in the grand scheme of things, only, the few, uh, only a few respond. The wide road and the narrow gate, you remember that? Only a few find it. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Why? Because they're not looking? Because they don't want to look? Or perhaps they refuse to look, or perhaps they've looked and don't want it and turn away? But on the positive side... As we draw the message here to a close, I want to go back to something I said in the beginning of the message. Jesus has invited us, folks, to a wedding celebration. What a celebration that's going to be. He has invited us to that celebration, and those who have received and responded to the invitation receive his righteousness. So how do we get that righteousness? It's only through Christ, admitting that we are sinners, admitting that we've gone our way, and that way is not working out very well for us. And we are turning to Christ and say, Christ, I want you. I want you to be my Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who responds to the invitation will be saved and will be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, the wedding garments that are essential. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, talking about Christ, so that, listen, in him we might become the righteousness of God. We could, have you thought about that? We might become the righteousness of God. We have been given entry into his kingdom. We have accepted his invitation to the great wedding feast of the Lamb. Folks, you are part of that. Listen to what John says in Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 to 9. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen and bright of fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Now listen, John describes that. In the parentheses here, fine linen represents the righteous acts of God's holy people. Christ was adorned fine linen. What is that fine linen? It's our righteous acts. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Folks, we are blessed We are so blessed because we have been invited. We have accepted that invitation. And may our lives reflect the righteousness of Christ. And may he be proud to wear our righteous acts. Think about that. May he be proud to wear our righteous acts at the great wedding of the Lamb. And may we be diligent and intentional in inviting others to the banquet. We prayed earlier this morning that the Lord would open our hearts to whatever the Holy Spirit might be saying to us. And I don't know where all of you are at this moment. I've got a good, good, good impression of many. <laughs> 
I, I don't know who all are listening via Facebook this morning. But which side are you on? The invitation is there. Come to my banquet. Come to my banquet. What are you doing with that invitation? Are you saying yes? I'm coming. I want the righteousness of Christ. I want to be a part of his kingdom. I want the joy because of the grace and mercy that God pours out. Or are, are, are we saying, nah, I don't care about that. I can go on doing whatever I want to do. There are consequences for both. Horrible consequences for one. Wonderful, blessed consequences for the other. May God speak to each one of our hearts and direct us in our decision this morning. Let's bow our prayer. Father, this morning, we want to thank you for, for this invitation. You love the world so much that you sent your one and only Son to die, to take our sins, to forgive us our sins, to purify us. But Father, not only just to purify us and forgive us our sins, but you, you, you came to transform our lives, to change our lives. Things that we do on our own, in my own experience, has, has, has led me to misery and frustration and anger, mistakes, consequences that I wish I hadn't had to go through. Father, when we walk in your steps, when we say to Jesus, yes, I want you to be my Savior. I have sinned. I have not been walking with you. I want you in my life now. Father, I pray that you, if there's one out here, whether it's in the sanctuary, whether it's out in the, in the Facebook world there, Father, I, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do a marvelous transformation and that joy would fill their hearts. Lord, we praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.